titled today's message, The Sinner and Her Savior. Because the woman in this passage is a sinner, and Jesus is her Savior in that He saves her from certain death. Obviously, He saves her from physical death here as her life hung in the balance, but I believe He saved her from spiritual, eternal death as well, or at least set the stage, at the very least, set the stage to save her later. Though undeniably guilty, this woman was forgiven and freed by the grace of God through Christ our Lord. That much is clear. And I want to encourage you today to know that you too can be forgiven and freed by Jesus. Both are important, forgiven and freed. You can know the forgiveness of Christ and you can experience freedom in Christ. This passage reveals both to us. This passage reveals Jesus to us. It speaks of law and justice. It speaks of mercy and grace. Here's what we learn. We learn that God is just. Yet He justifies the sinner by grace through Jesus Christ who paid sin's price and broke sin's power for all who trust in Him. That's where we're going this morning. That's what I think we learn here. I believe that's what this passage aims to teach us. But before we dive in, I want to take a bit of a... uh, What do we call it? What do you call it? A bunny trail? Rabbit trail. I want to take a bit of a rabbit trail uh, because I want to comment briefly (laughs) on a textual difficulty. Okay. It's going to be a very brief comment. You need to know that. <laughs> much briefer than it could be. Probably much briefer than you'd like it to be. But here we go. As you may have noticed in your Bible, John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11 is different than the rest of the Gospel of John. The ESV puts the passage in brackets and says parenthetically, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. Other translations say something similar. What this means is that the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not mention this account between Jesus and the adulterous woman. Some newer manuscripts have it. Some newer, older manuscripts have it. Uh, Others, interestingly, apparently, they leave a blank space in this section. A blank space from John chapter 7, verse 52 
through John chapter 8, verse 12, presumably a blank space where this passage would have gone. But because not all manuscripts mention or include this passage, talking about the earliest manuscripts, textual critics find it important to state as much, to let us know. Higher criticism and textual criticism are specialized fields of biblical interpretation that take great care in instances like these. And I will tell you right up front, they are not my fields. Those in these and similar fields are to be applauded for their work. It's one of the reasons why the Bible has proven to be so reliable and so historically accurate over the years so that we can say with certainty that the Bible surpasses all standards of reliability yet remains uniquely the Word of God. Okay, But for today's purposes, I'm going to choose... I believe we don't need to explore the many facets of textual criticism. It's a very important field, and I'm very thankful for those who give themselves to this work. One of my former professors, I actually had him preach here a couple of times, Peter Rogers, one of my former professors, is a textual critic. And let's just say that these folks fly in different skies, right? I mean, they are just in, they they think differently, they act differently. They study differently, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But the question before us, practically, is what do we make of this passage? Or this is the question I wrestled with. What do we make of this passage, and how should we proceed? Now, I was curious to learn. I didn't have a lot of time to explore, but I explored a little how other preachers or commentators dealt with this passage. What I learned is that some don't deal with it at all. They literally just skip it. Some preach it or comment on it, but they don't get into, they don't even make mention of the manuscript evidence. And some try to provide a helpful path forward, which is what I'm going to try to do now. So here's, here's where I've come down for now. Just because this account isn't included in the earliest manuscripts does not necessarily exclude it from the inspired, infallible Word of God. Is there anything here that contradicts any part of God's Word? No. Is there anything here that teaches false or even faulty doctrine? No. Is there anything here that casts God or man in a different light than either God or man is portrayed elsewhere? No. 
To the contrary, everything in this passage aligns perfectly with what we know about God and fallen humanity. Everything here presents Christ as he is presented elsewhere. Everything here is consistent with Scripture. Everything is consistent with the person of Christ and with high Christian doctrine. Furthermore, everything here seems to fit John's structure in that the encounter with the adulterous woman precedes a lengthy presentation of Christ. So chapter 3 began with the encounter with Nicodemus. Chapter 4 began with the woman at the well. Chapter 5 began with the invalid by the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 6 began with the crowd of thousands. Chapter 7 began with Jesus' brothers. And each of these encounters with Jesus was followed, right, by a lengthy uh, presentation of Jesus. Well, the same pattern is found here in that chapter 8 begins with Jesus and this woman, which leads us directly into Christ's I am the light of the world declaration that we're going to consider next week and following. So again, my position for now is that although this passage is not included, and it's true, is not included in the earliest manuscripts, I don't think that that necessarily excludes it from the Word of God. Now, maybe that's the easy way out. I'll admit that. And I'll just have to trust the textual critics out there to forgive me if I'm oversimplifying. God has much for us here. God has much for us here, so let's get to it. It's early morning. People are beginning their day. Jesus has made his way from the Mount of Olives to the temple. Others gather around him as he sits and begins to teach. Suddenly a group of Jewish leaders, both scribes and Pharisees, barge through the crowd and bring with them by force a woman whom they charge with a serious crime. She's placed in the midst of the crowd before Jesus, and they say to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then we're told, this they said to test him, they might have some charge to bring against him. There are three main characters in this scene. There's the woman, her accusers, and Jesus. What do we know about the woman? We know she's an adulteress. Caught in the act of adultery. The woman is as guilty as they come. And according to the law, she must die. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, makes very clear, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. You can compare that also with Deuteronomy 22, 22. So the woman is the defendant here, and she's no innocent victim. If this were a made-for-TV courtroom drama... 
She'd probably be portrayed as a shameful woman who betrayed the marriage relationship and broke marriage vows. She'd be seen as a home wrecker, sexually immoral, entirely undeserving of our pity, with no excuse and no defense. The plain and simple fact is that she is guilty as charged. What do we know about her accusers? They are the prosecuting attorneys in this case. And it seems they are calloused and they are conniving. Having caught the woman red-handed, they bring her to trial. They want swift justice but not really. What they really want is Jesus. The woman is merely a pawn in their master plan, someone they can use to get to Jesus. They want to publicly accuse and charge Christ. So they endeavor to put him in a no-win situation. Would he uphold the law and condemn the woman, or would he disregard the law and release her? That was the dilemma. Well, if he approved of her stoning, they would discredit him to the crowds. The crowds knew Jesus to be merciful and a friend of sinners. Jesus often hung with those on the fringe, with those of low repute, with those whom others neglected, with those whose sins were well known. So were he to condemn this woman, the scribes and Pharisees would would use it against him to show that when push came to shove, Jesus didn't care for them at all. What appeared to be a loving concern for the masses was in fact just a sham. But not only would they have ammunition against Jesus with the crowds, but with the Romans as well. For although the Romans gave the Jews some leeway in judicial matters, capital punishment was not among them. So if Jesus were to condemn this woman to death, the Jewish leaders would likely have gone straight to the Roman authorities. They would have accused Jesus of insurrection against Roman rule and let the Romans dispose of him once and for all. On the flip side... If Jesus released the woman, they would have accused him of making light of sin and disregarding the law of God. Jesus was known as a man of God who claimed authority from God, even equality with God. So were he to undermine God's law, his reputation as a man of God would have been shot. For no one who claimed authority from God, especially equality with God, would outright disobey God's law. Let's pause here. Ever feel like you're in a no-win situation? 
hard-pressed on every side. Between a veritable rock and hard place. Ever been tempted to compromise who you are and what you stand for because it seems there's no way out? Ever come across people who seem hell-bent tra- uh, on trapping you or tripping you up? People in your class or at school, people at work, maybe your boss or a co-worker who wants what you have. They don't really care about the issue at hand. The issue doesn't really matter. It's all a facade anyway. All they care about is using whatever means possible to trip you or trap you. That's what's going on here. And as a just quick aside, it's another reason to go to Jesus today in those circumstances because the Bible tells us that he's tempted, he was tempted in every way just as we were yet without sin and it urges us to go to him as our high priest so that we can find grace and help in our time of need. So if you've been in those type of situations where it seems there was no way out, where it seemed as though, where you were tempted to compromise who you were and what you stand for, know that Jesus was in a very, the very same situation and the stakes were much, much higher. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I don't care about the law. They don't care about justice. They don't care about the sanctity of marriage. They certainly don't care for this woman. All they cared about was finding something, anything to pin on Jesus. They had set the trap and they were lying in wait. We've got him. He only has two moves they thought and either one will bring his certain demise checkmate picture it the woman ashamed disgraced guilty her accusers violent angry sinister 
tensions are rising, the crowd is murmuring. What's he going to do? Well, what does he do? How does he respond to the woman's accusers and then to the woman herself? And what do we learn from him? And what we learn is that Jesus, Jesus was just. And I think we learn he was the justifier of the guilty. Jesus was just in that he upheld God's law. It says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, as they continued to press him, come on, what are you going to do? He stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And I know what you're thinking, right? What did he write? <laughs> it's what we're all thinking. What did Jesus write on the ground? Oh my goodness, wouldn't we love to know what he wrote? The possibilities are endless. Maybe he was simply buying time to think through his response. Maybe he was praying. Maybe he quoted scripture. Maybe he looked around at each scribe and each Pharisee and he listed their names one by one. Maybe he looked around, looked them in the eye and listed their sins one by one. We don't no. Maybe he doodled. Maybe he copied the lyrics of his favorite song. Maybe he diagrammed plays for the flag football game later that afternoon. We don't know. We don't know. Oh, but we want to know. Lord, tell us. temptation to speculate is just too great. But truthfully, it, it really doesn't matter what Jesus wrote. What matters is the point Jesus made. He essentially agrees with them that the woman is guilty and deserving of death, and therefore he upholds the law of God. But he unexpectedly turns the tables on them by forcing them to see their own guilt first. So while agreeing with their assessment that she is guilty, Jesus causes them to assess themselves first and foremost. I love it. I love it. What a tremendous display of divine wisdom and authority, right? Here these accusers thought they had the woman and Christ dead to rights. And yet with one simple statement, they were brought face to face with their own sin and guilt. And when they heard it, verse 9, they went away. One by one. Beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. There's an application for us here. Let him 
who is without sin be the first to throw stones. His point is that we who judge will be judged by the very same standard. So we must exercise, right? This is the teaching. Anytime the New Testament teaches on judgment, it, 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 it teaches, it, it brings forth great caution. We must exercise great caution when it comes to judging the sin of others because we are guilty of sin ourselves. We must search and judge ourselves before we even think about searching or judging another. We must first remove the log from our own eye before we even think about pinpointing the speck in our neighbor's. I think it's safe to say, isn't it? I think it's safe to say that when Judgment Day comes, none of us will be quick to throw stones. None of us will be running to the rock pile for ammunition. When faced with our own sin, I suspect that none of us will not care much about pointing out the sin of another. So the application here embedded in this text, though not the main point of the text, but certainly here, is let's not be quick to see people get theirs. Let's not be quick to see people get theirs. For by the standard with which you judge, you will be judged. Yes, the woman was guilty. No doubt about it. But so were they. In fact, the evidence suggests they staged the whole affair. That the man was not present, the adulterer, the adulterer who was likewise condemned by the law, that suggests that they set up and framed the woman simply to get to Christ. Suggests that even one of their own perhaps played the role of the man, seducing the woman and staging the whole encounter while others waited and watched so as to have witnesses present. Evil. You're right. You're absolutely right, Jesus says in effect. She has sinned and you can stone her as long as you aren't guilty of sin yourselves. And when confronted by that reality, when convicted of their own sin, they let her be, and they left the scene. Jesus is just because he upholds the law of God and secondly, Jesus is the justifier because he fulfills God's law and he forgives and frees the lawbreaker. Verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, 
Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Can you imagine her surprise? Her relief. She's guilty. She knows it. Jesus knows her guilt. Jesus knows her sin, her sins. He knows her many failures. He knows what she deserves and what the law demands. And yet, having upheld the law, he now forgives her and he frees her from its demands. He says, Neither do I condemn you. (sighs) Neither do I condemn you. But Jesus, she's guilty. Neither do I condemn her. What, Jesus? I don't deserve this. Neither do I condemn you. As I once heard R.C. Sproul say, If that doesn't turn you on, then you don't have any switches. (laughs) If these words from Jesus don't move you, then you're beyond moving. Because these are the very same words that Jesus speaks to each and every one of us when we entrust ourselves to him. You and I are the adulterous woman. We are guilty. We are dead to rights. We have no defense. We are lawbreakers. We have sinned against God. We are justly condemned before God. How then can Jesus say this? How can God forgive our sins and uphold the righteous requirements of His good and perfect law? Answer by paying the price Himself. By receiving our sins punishment Himself by enduring God's wrath towards sin Himself, by dying our death, by becoming our substitute. And this He did on the cross for for our sake. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who had no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What love. 
And isn't it interesting that when Jesus says, right? When Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone, he himself was the only one qualified. Of all who were there, only he could stand sinless before God. Only he could have grabbed a stone and justifiably destroyed her. And yet instead he forgave her. And he freed her. Because in just six short months... He would take her sins upon himself and he would die for her. No one will ever, ever, ever be justified before God by obedience to the law. Only Jesus upheld God's law perfectly, doing for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection from the dead what we could never do for ourselves. Therefore, we are justified before God only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's a message we need to hear over and over and over again. The order's important, right? Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. No, he said, I don't condemn you. So go and sin no more. See the difference? The former is salvation by works. We try to clean up our act before God, hoping that we can do enough to earn enough with Him. That's not biblical. No, salvation is by grace alone, God's grace alone. Through faith alone, right? In Christ alone. And listen, God's saving grace always, always, always has a sanctifying effect so that we can, in fact, go and sin no more. When we enter into a relationship with God through faith in Christ, we, we are no longer slaves to sin. God breaks those chains. Sin is no longer our master. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are spiritually reborn. We are created new in Christ, meaning that freedom in Christ, please hear this, means freedom to stop sinning. Sure, it's hard. Of course, it's a battle. The old and new natures are still at war, but the victory is won. So don't give up. 
Sometimes we say things. Stop saying these things. Sometimes we say things. Well, I'm just a sinner. Well, that's just how I'm wired. What? I know I should change, but I can't. Baloney. The God who saves you is the God who sanctifies you. He forgives you. He forgives you in Christ and he frees you to live in Christ. So work out Work it out. Exercise it. Work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. If you've not been forgiven your sins or freed from their power, will you come to Christ today? What could be more what could possibly be more important than admitting your guilt and need and embracing Christ as the one who meets your need? What could be more important than passing from death to life and becoming a child of God? And if you're a Christian, or if as a Christian you find yourself embracing or ignoring your sin instead of sinning no more, what could be more important than coming again to Jesus? confessing your sins to God who is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Beloved, God is just, yet he justifies the sinner by grace, through Jesus Christ, who paid sin's price and broke sin's power for all who trust and follow him. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you again for your holy word. We thank you for its holy work in our lives. And we pray that, that that work would continue today unabated as you show us Christ and 
bring us life in his name. Make us to be people who are ever growing, ever learning, ever living in the presence and by the power of the one who forgave us and freed us to go and sin no more. Be glorified in this and bring good to your people, we pray. Amen.